Amen. Well, let's turn to question number, um, question number 26. And last week we looked at uh, the threefold office of Christ. Anyone know what those three offices are? Uh huh. That's one. Priest. Yeah, prophet, priest, and king. We'll do a summary of that in a moment, but let me just read a few verses from Psalm 110. It says in Psalm 110, a Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what we get in Psalm 110, which is taken up in Hebrews, actually the book of Hebrews doesn't really deal with Christ as prophet, priest, and king. It actually deals with Christ being the priest and king. And sometimes you get younger preachers and they'll say, he is the prophet, priest, and king in Hebrews. And though it, the, the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king are absolutely true from all of Scripture, Hebrews focuses on this office of Christ as priest and king. But it says here, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Can anyone tell us about Melchizedek? Okay, was, I've not heard that one before. I'm not, I'm not laughing, down, Dave. I thought you were going to. I've not, we'll leave, we'll part that one for now and talk about that over tea and coffee. Anything else about Melchizedek? Okay, that's one, a forerunner of Christ. But in what way is he a forerunner of Christ then? King of Salem. What does Salem mean? Well, what does Salem mean then? Peace. So he's a king of peace, and he's, a, oh, he's also a king of something else, isn't he? Anyone know? His name means Melchizedek. He's a king of righteousness. So he's a twofold aspect to him being a king. So he is a king. He's a priest. But what tribe was he from then, Melchizedek? Okay, so no one knows where he came from, so we don't know what tribe he's from. But does anybody know what the Lord ordained which tribe priests could, had to come from? Levi. Why do you say that? Why do you leave that? Yeah, so that tribe was set apart that you couldn't be a priest unless you're from the tribe of Levi. If, you, if you're from the tribe of Dan, he said, well, I've always wanted to be a priest. You need to get another job. You can't be a priest. So is, what's, what's this teaching us then here? It says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've heard there that we don't know what tribe is from. So how Christ is going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, what tribe was Christ from? Judah. Judah. 
Exactly. So there's a change in the priesthood with the coming of Jesus Christ. Because he is not only a priest, he's also our high priest. <clears throat> so let's take a look at question number 24. It says, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? And what a prophet does, he brings the word or words from God to the people. So it's coming down from God to the people. Then it says, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Well, the priest represents the people of God to God. So it's going back to God. And then why don't we read question 26. How does Christ execute the office of a king? And we'll read it out loud together. You ready? 26. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So what we see in Psalm 110 and verse 3, it says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments. So that's teaching us that God's people will be subdued to God's king, and God's appointed king is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, who's now the Lord Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven. So we see in the question there, Christ executes that office of a king ongoing in subduing us to himself. Does he subdue everybody in the world to himself? Or who is he subduing to himself? The elect. the elect. Okay. So he's not subduing everybody, but the question is is he the king over everybody or not? You say yes. Anybody else? Okay. Will be. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But the question is here it says, in subduing us to himself, who is the us? Is it everybody or the elect of God? What about anybody else? Mm -hmm. Sure. No, well, that, that, so don't. don't I think the good thing about the catechism for all of us is that this teases out the answers for us. So it's not kind of like a quiz. You know what I mean? It's, let's, let's work through this then. Who is the us? Do, does anybody else think? What about this side here? Who do you think the us is? Why? Why do you say that? Because although Yeah. Yeah, well, well. Uh huh. Yes. So, it, but it says in verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. So it's the elect of God who is subduing to himself. But one day, but he's, as Andy has rightly said, he's the king over not only every person, but over everything, over every molecule, over every ant. 
So it says in the question, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, and then it says in ruling and defending us. So in what way then do you think God, through Christ, rules us, and how does he defend us? How does he rule us? Anybody have any thoughts on that one? How the... Such as mm -hmm. anybody else? How though? And it says he chastises, but how does that work though in practice? Okay, so he uses other people. Could that be your next door neighbor? Okay, could be. Uh, but there's a more specific answer, though. It's not, not wrong what he's saying, but it's incomplete in the way that he rules over us. In Isaiah 33 22, it says, For the Lord, capital L O R D, is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. So what does the scripture say about how the Lord rules and defends us then? Gives his law. You're getting warmer now. You're getting closer to it. Okay, the Ten Commandments. Is it only the Ten Commandments that, that the Lord as King uses to rule over us? What makes you say that? But anyone want to find Hebrews chapter 1, the first couple of verses for us? Anyone volunteer to find that? Dave, Dave you can find that one. And um, can somebody else find uh, 1 Corinthians 15.25? Anyone volunteer for that? Maria? Someone find Luke 2, 7. Anybody that one? Someone find Philippians chapter 2. Anyone? No? Okay, well, let's look at this, first of all, because it says in, he executes the office of a king, um, in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and then in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So, Dave, can you read yours first for us? Hebrew, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, in whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Thank you for that. So, what we find there is that Christ has spoken to us, uh, sorry, God has spoken to us through his Son. Now, God has spoken to us through his Son, in a sense, through the whole of Scriptures, because Christ himself is the, is the Word 
and then he's the word who became flesh. So it's, it's the, the word of God that rules over us in the church. It's the word of God alone that is the supreme authority over us in the church. Would you agree with that? Anybody else give me thoughts on that, on that at all? Or do you think that? So, because we have the Bible, does that mean we'll always be free from error? You're shaking your head, Andy. Why is that? Mm, that's a great point, and we could almost spend all night on that one because we have the infallible Word of God that's without any error, but our interpretations are not without error because subjectivity can come in and someone can say, well, I think the Bible says this, and someone else can say something else. But there we find what's known as the infallible rule of interpretation, that it's Scripture that actually interprets Scripture. So it's the Word of God that rules over us. God has given us his authority, which is the word of God. And um, that's why it's very important that any church that would claim to be called a church has to have as a key component in their worship, what? For it to be true worship. Yeah, in particular, the reading, but also the preaching of the Word of God. Not just reading, but we're not here to give lectures, are we? The Word of God's to be heralded. And so it's, it's, this is how God rules over us in his church. Now, there are also two sacraments, and there are only two sacraments in the church. Anyone know what those two sacraments are? Sorry, I was just tightening that one up. Baptism and... Exactly. So these are the symbols and signs of the king. Like you have a ring. In, a, in the king's days, he'd have a ring, and the imprint would be on a document, so he knew something was genuine. We also have two visible sacraments, which are the sacraments of the sign and seals of the king. Uh, one is baptism, and the other one is the, the Lord's Supper. So there are only three signs and seals that are allowed for us visibly uh, to mark out the difference between uh, the people of God and those who are not uh, part of the people of God. So it says, in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies, who's got 1 Corinthians 15, 25? you, Marisa. <laughs> so the Lord Almighty is going to put all of his and our enemies under his feet. So should we sit here tonight afraid of Vladimir Putin? No. Why? Okay. Anybody else on that? 
Well, should any of us sit here tonight and be afraid of Vladimir Putin? What would you say, Andrew? Because that's what, that's what the Lord says. He said, the Lord says, do not fear him who can take away your lives, but fear him who has the power to cast soul and body into hell. So, in other words, the only person that we are required to fear is the triune God. Now, during World War II, there was a worse tyrant than Vladimir Putin. His name was, anyone ever guess what his name was? Well, that's true, Stalin certainly was. He got worse later, though, didn't he, I think? But Adolf Hitler, and Lloyd-Jones himself was a pastor uh, during most of the war in London, in Westminster Chapel. And Lloyd-Jones said something interesting. He said, I never feared Adolf Hitler for one second. And I'm not sure if I was alone in World War II that I'd be able to say that. But Lloyd-Jones said it, and he said... If I had have feared, I would just have had to have turned, needed to have turned to Psalm 37, which says, fret not. And then it says, those who spread themselves like a green laurel tree, one day you look and they're not there anymore. I think that's an encouragement for us, isn't it? So here we see, we could talk more, but it says also in the catechism question that the Lord... And Christ as the king not, not only conquers, but he restrains all of his and our enemies. That means nobody can go beyond that which God permits. Vladimir Putin cannot do anything beyond that which the Lord permits. But shall we move on a bit further then to question 27? So we move on from Christ being the, our prophet, priest, and king... Again, this is not exhaustive. The shorter catechism is not exhaustive. It's not telling us everything about every spiritual truth, but it's telling us, it's a summary of the most succinct things for us. And then we now move into two questions which deal with Christ's humiliation and also Christ's exaltation. And we need to think about both um, deeply if we're going to really understand Christ and the gospel. So let's read question 27 out loud together first of all. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in him low condition under the law I, one of the things I feel, on the one hand, you want to go at the right pace, you don't want to be just dragging this out, but there's, there's so much in each of these questions. Christ's humiliation consisted in him being born. And then it says, and that's in a low condition. But the low condition we can understand, you know, we've got Christmas coming up soon, haven't we? And... Uh, for schools that know their left hand from their right hand, they'll probably have nativity plays. Unfortunately today, 
But that's not always the case, is it? But we'll leave that to one side. We can often think about Christ's humiliation, you know, being born in... Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Yeah, so... Exactly. So Micah 5.2 says exactly where the Messiah has to be born. So if he was born in Bethlehem, which city was he conceived in by the Holy Spirit? Nazareth. But it says here, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. And then it says, and that in a low condition. In what way Christ being born is, in what way is that part of his humiliation? Anybody? Mm. Anybody else want to add to that? I'm not saying it's not correct, but you said it is. Isn't that amazing? And this should lead us to a place of worship, really. Because we just we could go through this catechism question and just go through it too quickly, get straight to the fact that he was born in a stable. But actually the question says, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. And, and before we get any further, so the fact that he was born, Maria said he was born of a man, I think you said. But actually... Hmm? Yes, that's better. Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> because he actually became a man uh, over, I don't know, 18 years or whatever. But the fact that he was born, and Juliet just said something again. Just to remind me of what you just said, Juliet. The fact that it was. Mm hmm. Uh huh. Creation. Mm hmm. See, it's just incredible, isn't it? What else was God, including Christ, who was part of the Trinity, apart from transcendent? And he tell us, Dave, tell us one thing about God, God's character. God is love. love yeah, but anything else? Anybody? Holy. Almighty. Anything else about God's character? He's just, yeah. Yeah, sure. God is infinite without limit. And he's got something. And that's true. Charles Wesley, in some of these hymns on the incarnation, tries to grapple with it as best as possible. And he says... Um, God contracted to a span, that's the height of a man, incomprehensibly made man. But the infinite, eternal, transcendent, just, holy God 
becomes not only a man, but actually born as a baby. The fact that he's born in the first place is part of Christ's humiliation. Any other thoughts on that before we move on? Anybody? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. How else do we know that they were a poor family, apart from being born in a stable? Have you got that verse? No, no, no. Who's got Luke two seven to read that one out? Is that yours? Okay, go. You read it out because you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I thought you'd also got the verse because when Joseph and Mary, you had to under the law, you had to bring a sacrifice for cleansing. He was he, Christ. I was say baptized, but he was circumcised on what day? The eighth. Why was Christ circumcised? Because who was born was the son of Abraham. Exactly, to fulfill the law. So he was, was, was circumcised on the eighth day. When baby Jesus was circumcised, what happened? In any respect, you know, to be embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's something more important than that. Shedding of blood. The first shedding of the son's blood was actually at his circumcision. And so blood was shed from there. But when Jesus died and was raised from the dead, that there's no longer anymore the shedding of blood in the sacraments that we have at baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it's a finished sacrifice. So there was the, the his circumcision and there was the shedding of blood, but there's also something more, what Andy's saying, that then a woman had to go to the, to the temple to offer a sacrifice for her uncleanness after giving birth. And what did they offer Joseph and Mary? Why, why, oh, turtle doves. So instead of what, though? What could, what could they have offered instead? Anyone know? Or, no, I don't think it was a goat. I think it was, was it, a, it was like a cow or something. I can't remember now the exact details. But there were two pretty hefty animals. But for those who were poor, there was provision in the law that you could either offer two pigeons or two turtle doves. And so Joseph and Mary offered the very uh, most humble of sacrifices for an offering for, for Mary's uh, cleansing. We don't know. How many wise men were there, by the way? Anyone know? Hmm? What? Go on, Andy. You know? Not many. Oh, many. We, don't, we just don't know, do we? But we know what gifts they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, 
Anyway, a bit off track. Christ's humiliation consists in his being born, that in a low condition, and then made under the law. Um, can someone find Galatians 4.4? 4? Anyone volunteer for that? Galatians 4.4? 4? No, no, that's fine. That's fine. You've got Galatians 4.4. 4. Just a minute. Someone find Isaiah 53.3. Who's going to find that one? Dave, someone find Matthew 27.46. Maria, someone else find Matthew 12.40. Who's that? Yeah, Matthew 12.40. So this is an important one that we're going to hear now. Galatians 4.4. 4. Born under the law. Was it important as to what country Jesus had been brought up in? Was that important, does anyone think? What country was Jesus brought up in? Israel. Is that important for us, think? Why? Yeah. Could he have said, could his parents have said, you know what, we're just, we're fed up of Herod and whatever else, and we're just going to, we're going to stop in Egypt. Why? Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> That's true, the angel told them to. But that, that was not what I meant to mean. Could, could, could Jesus have been the Messiah if it had operated outside of Israel? Yeah, well, he couldn't have even done it theoretically because he had to be there to fulfill the law. Andrew's just read he was made under the law, and part of the law, you had to go to Jerusalem three times a year for all the feasts and so forth. But there's also more than that. God, had, Even though there was a lot of Phariseeism and scribes and false teaching in the synagogues, the law itself was administered from, uh, well, I would say from Jerusalem, really, from, from Israel, and which meant, it's interesting, that when the, when the Jews, uh, the people got come back from exile, there's one thing in particular that's a major difference from before they went into exile to afterwards. Anyone know what it is? There's a major change in the behavior of the professing people of God between before exile and when they actually come back into the land. Yeah, what's the difference? Okay, so the temple's destroyed, so they had to rebuild the temple. That's true. So they rebuilt the temple. But it's something specifically that's really important for us. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes. I can't say they repented of everything because in Malachi they're actually offering blind animals and so forth, aren't they? However, there's no record of visible idolatry whatsoever after they return back. Now that's primarily the work of one prophet in particular whom God used. Anybody know who that was? Close, but no, Ezekiel. 
God, was, God raised up Ezekiel, who was actually a, a prophet to the exiled people, and he was used by the Lord, and the Lord used him to particularly preach against idolatry. So as a result of the word of God, when they did come back, there's no record whatsoever of there being visible idols or the people running after false gods in that respect. So they were pure, and that's very important because the Lord Jesus could not have been the Messiah if Nazareth had been filled with all kinds of idols and been led to idolatrous practices. So the land uh, or the people were pre prepared in preparation for the Messiah coming. So Jesus couldn't have been born into a Chinese family where there would be ancestral worship. So there were none of those things. Is that help at all so we've got what Andrew's just read Galatians 4.4 4. so he was made under the law and lived under the law um, who's got the next verse which is um, Isaiah 53.3 3. I think one of the main things to see is that the Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows, not only in his death, but actually in his whole life. That um, Just think about how many times that Jesus of Nazareth would have walked past blind people and blind beggars in Jerusalem when he went there, and also in Nazareth perhaps going to work, knowing he couldn't heal them until he actually was and then even then he wouldn't heal every blind person, but until he entered into ministry. And who knows how old he was when he began ministry? Anyone know? 30. And um, the age of a priest. But the Bible, well, not the catechism talks here about that Jesus, though, as the God-man, underwent the miseries of this life. Imagine that, the miseries of his life. The, I think it's most likely that as he was brought up in, in Bethlehem that Jesus would not have had a bath with hot water. Can you imagine that? People talk about the heating bills. Well, there weren't any heating bills at the time of Jesus because they didn't have central heating in a sense. They may have had a fire on. But some of the luxuries that we enjoy, like a refrigerator and things like that, the home of of Christ wouldn't have had that. And anyone know how many brothers and sisters Jesus had according to the flesh? Is that a guess? <laughs> we don't need to guess. Anyone tell us exactly how many brothers and sisters did the Lord Jesus have? Yeah, he had four brothers and he had at least two sisters because it's plural. So that means there, was a, there were at least a minimum of seven children in the house. And there could have been more. We don't know that. But we know there was definitely seven. And that we know, according to Andy Bates, it wasn't a big house because he was born of a low condition. So there would have been knowing something of the miseries of this life. It doesn't mean that Jesus was brought up in poverty in terms of not being able to have food. Um, it was a hard-working man, and so was his father. But they wouldn't have enjoyed the luxuries of, 
of, uh, of the royal family in, in Britain. And though he was a king. So let's move on a bit further. Who's got the next verse, which is um, Matthew 27, 46. We're getting now to his death, I think. So on the cross, Jesus said he most likely was crucified naked. So he died in poverty and shame and total humiliation, dying as a Roman criminal. And he quotes there Psalm 22, verse 1, really signifying that he's going to fulfill the whole of that psalm. People mocking him, as we just heard there from Isaiah 53. And can there be anything much more humiliating than being the son of God and dying in such a way. I remember when I was a new Christian, I remember I said to this man leading a Bible study, I said, why was it that Jesus died this way? I said, if I was the son of God, I said to him, it's ridiculous looking back, but these are the kind of things that new Christians say. I said, well, I would have ridden into Jerusalem on a Rolls Royce, not on a donkey. And he said, well, yeah, but that wasn't the way that God had planned Jesus died in humiliation. And we need to meditate on this much. And the humiliation doesn't stop there. As someone has got Philippians, anybody? Can you read just verse 8? They could read the whole hymn. But can you read verse 8, Mel? Obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's hard for us to convey that, isn't it? It was a very difficult message for the apostles to take into the Roman world, to tell everyone, you've got to believe in this man who's the Messiah. And they said, oh, yeah, that's great. And can you tell us more? And they said, yeah, he died on a cross. He died on a cross, and you want us to believe in him? It was absolute foolishness. It was... It was only the Holy Spirit that could convince people because the humiliation of the death of the cross is beyond thoughts. One man wrote, I think it was Josephus, I think, who was a, a Jewish historian. I think it was him that said that dying, dying by crucifixion was like dying a thousand deaths. It was designed to be a most brutal form of death. And then as someone got verse 17... Matthew twelve forty. So it finishes off here in that what does Christ's humiliation consist? It begins with him being conceived and born, but it also finishes off with him being buried. And sometimes we forget the burial, don't we, when we hear the gospel. We don't have much focus on the burial. Uh, but it's, it specifically mentions that the burial was part of the humiliation of Christ. And he continued in the power of death for a time until, like Jonah, he was raised from the dead on the third day. And I I thought we'd have got further tonight. I'm not frustrated in any way, shape, or form. We don't want to rush through this. But we've looked at 
Christ's office of a king is humiliation. And we'll have to stop there and then focus on his exaltation, if God permits, next week. But any other questions or comments on that before we move on? Any thoughts on that? The humiliation of Christ? Yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah, and obviously, one, it's wrong to be painting Christ on the cross, isn't it? Because we're not to have images of God. Um, it probably is right in him painting it that you wouldn't paint that side. But the humiliation goes further than those false images actually portray. Um, crucifixion was brutal. Any other thoughts about the humiliation of Christ before we move on? Mm-hmm. Mm. Praise God. What a wonderful phrase that is. Because we're getting Colossians that Jesus is the image of what? The invisible God. So what we see is something of the character of God. Because Christ humbles himself. And, and yet there is no pride in Christ whatsoever. And there we're seeing the character of God. He comes as a, as a servant, doesn't he? And he even washes the feet of his disciples, which was the lowest job. It's like, what are you, Peter's saying, what are you, what are you in Jesus? Please, please don't do this. He was doing the job, really, of a Gentile slave or something like that. And it's exhibiting the lowly character of our God. Any other comments before we move on? So we'll get a bit more into that one next week about the victory of the cross. But even still, what Andy said there, that if the, it says in Corinthians, if the rulers of this world had known what was happening, they would never have crucified him. And the devil was 
outwitted by Almighty God, if I can use that phrase. He was totally defeated by God Almighty. And, um, but it took the humiliation of Christ because he fulfilled all that Adam brought into this world by his sin. And when he was on the cross, the last Adam died. And the second man arose out the grave. But we'll stop there for now. But I hope we can meditate a bit more on the humiliation of Christ because a shallow understanding of his humiliation will lead to a shallow understanding about God and a shallow understanding about the atonement and all that was accomplished by our Savior. So, Well, so if God permits, next week we'll carry on looking at the exaltation.